decades ago, food co-ops seemed like they would be in Boston for the long haul. The worker and community-owned stores offered culturally responsive food, connection to the neighborhoods, and an oasis in food deserts often found in communities of color left without easily available healthy grocery options. But the Harvest co-op markets shuttered in 2018, saying there was, quote, no viable path forward for its Boston-area stores. So for the past five years, Boston grocery co-ops were just a twinkle in the eye of the Dorchester food co-op team. Efforts to bring a food co-op to Dorchester, which is the city's largest and most diverse neighborhood, had been in progress for years. Now set to open this fall, the path to a Dorchester food co-op has taken more than a decade. So what distinguishes them from a Whole Foods or a market basket? Are they cheaper? Are the offerings different? And what does community ownership actually do for the surrounding area? I'm Jennifer Smith with Commonwealth, and today I'm joined by John Santos, the general manager of the Dorchester Food Co-op. John, thanks so much for being here. It's a pleasure to be here. So in case, and I as a Dorchester resident cannot believe this, in case someone has never heard of the Dorchester Food Co-op before, tell me what it is and what your role is there. Well, first off, how could that possibly be that <laughs> people haven't heard of the Dorchester Co-op? We, we started um, in 2012. And actually, one of the folks that uh, this was her idea to try to bring a co-op to, to Dorchester, she actually met with folks at the Harvest Co-op and tried to get them to open a second location in Dorchester and, and was turned down but didn't get deterred. And so she just leaned into it, and the co-op was actually incorporated in 2012. And it's been uh, a community asset, uh, attending farmer's markets and doing pop-ups here and there and just trying to spread the word of... Uh, the, the good words about how to help support the community. And um, eventually, in like in 2019, they, they f- found a partner in Viet Aid and were able to uh, secure a site. And now we are the bottom floor of um, an apartment building that houses 41 different families, low-income families, right on the corner of Topliff and Bowdoin. The actual address is 195 Bowdoin Street right across from the Family Nurturing Center. So we're right in, an, in a great spot to service the community. We have the Family Nurturing Center across the street. We have the uh, Bowdoin uh, Health Center right down the street from us. So we're, we're really poised to um, have good outreach. And we have a strong partnerships with both of those organizations as well as other community organizations that um, service, you know, Roslindale and uh, all all over the landscape. I, I have to put a disclaimer out. I, I, I am a resident of Providence, so I'm still learning the cities. <laughs> I did serve as the general manager at Tropical Foods on Malnia Cass for about three years. So I do know some of Boston, but um, yeah, my I can tell you all about Benefit Street in Providence. <laughs> I mean, look, we are we are regional New England. We accept yeah. people even if they don't, oh, you know, okay. live in Massachusetts as long as they are bringing food to Massachusetts. So one thing that's kind of interesting that you mentioned, of course, Harvest, is Boston's had a long history with food co-ops. And, of course, many places have a long history with food co-ops. So talk people through what's different about mm. a food co-op as opposed to a normal market. So uh, we are Boston's only food co-op now. Um, and, you know, I've had a lot of experience working in supermarkets, started when I was 16, and I'm 62 now, right, run, run stores for Whole Foods and, and different operations. So um, I, can, I can contrast this for you. So the primary difference is the ownership position. In a co-op, our co-op, for example, we have over 1,600 owners. 
Um, they've paid $100 to become a, an owner member of the co-op. And it's, it's kind of interesting because if you don't have the $100, we have a program that subsidizes that. The key thing is to get the community to take an ownership position. And that's a fee that you pay once in your lifetime. And that gives you uh, the opportunity to be part of the decision-making process, have your voice heard as to what foods are going to be offered in this community and what the operating processes and policies are for the organization. So um, we've, we're committed to buying locally produced and, and grown foods. We're committed to, buy, uh, to hiring from our community. Um, we are committed to trying to offer the goods that are culturally relevant to the community, to the members of our community, and, and hearing from them what, what they want us to do with our influence. Mm-hmm. So it's mo- much more than just a grocery store. I mean, right now, we're actively participating with CSAs as a distribution point. So there are farms around the city that bring their goods to us, and we distribute them for them. We deal with organizations like JVS, uh, where we bring in interns. These are youth that have cognitive challenges, and it's a real-world uh, working environment where they get to hone their skills. And um, they have counselors, but we've been approached by a number of different organizations to partner. And that's all key, part and parcel to what we're about. If I could delve into a few of the things that you pieced out there. So one of them is kind of the different types of food and the different kinds of sort of cultural awarenesses that you're trying to bring in. So what is it, for instance, that makes uh, food offerings culturally responsive? And what sorts of feedback have you gotten so far from what people are looking for in Dorchester? Sure. So um, if you walk into tropical foods, for example... Uh, you're going to see plantains and yucca and uh, all kinds of yams, things you might not be very familiar with. And you'll find uh, certain ingredients on the shelf, like uh, Titus sardines, for example. Now, before I went to work at Tropical Foods, I, I was a store manager at Whole Foods for many years, and I thought that I had all there was to be an expert in this field. And then when I got to Tropical, I discovered I really didn't know anything about the ethnic customer. Mm-hmm. And, the, you know, that the folks from Africa prefer Titus sardines, not just any sardines, that brand of sardines. So it's being sensitive to those kinds of products and brands that is kind of a launching point. So when we go for, for the Dorchester Food Co-op, we are partnering with um, – suppliers that have a great source of uh, access to to specific ethnic ingredients stuff that they're bringing across you know right right from abroad for example the the bread that we sell a couple of the options are pan sabao and pan de agua and these breads are actually made in Puerto Rico now before we started talking sourdough came up from from San Francisco well people don't realize that what Certain foods, like bread, it's a really an artisan product, and it takes into what impacts it is the humidity, the altitude, um, the ingredients, and even the skill level of how this bread is handled. And that's why you, you can't find baguettes like you can find in, in Paris. You can't find sourdough like you can in, in San Francisco. Even if you take the baker from San Francisco and move them to Boston, their product isn't the same. So this pan sabao and pan de agua is actually made with Puerto Rican water and flour and yeast 
and uh, and it's made it's, it, the dough is prepared at that altitude at sea level. Interesting. And so that has an impact on the flavor and taste of that bread. And there's many things that that, that go like that. But um, we hire from the community and our, our store speaks Haitian Creole, Cape Verdean Creole, and then Portuguese, of course, and Spanish and Somali. So we have a lot of people that are contributing to our product selection, our product mix. And we have, you know, there's no lack for volunteers to bring in their grandmother's recipe, their abuela's recipe for a sancocho, you know. And and then so those are the kind of resources that we have, and as well as our owners uh, offering their recipes. So those are the ingredients that we're talking about here. But then, of course, it needs to then be combined, perhaps, into something that someone could just walk in and walk out with. So is that also factoring into kind of the cultural conversation? Well, you, you touched on one of the most exciting parts about our store, because oftentimes people will come in and see ingredients that they've never worked with before, but they're curious about. And especially today, as uh, as America is evolving and we have more and more cultural uh, identities manifesting at the grocery store, some of these ingredients are foreign. So uh, a prepared foods department that offers these products as part of their their, their selection, if you will, gives a customer a chance to try something and then maybe inspires them to buy that yuca or that name, that yam, or callaloo. These are different items that um, are very important to certain cultures, but, but not necessarily familiar to other cultures. Many of the conversations about kind of the food that's available in different Boston neighborhoods, it's not just a Boston thing specifically, obviously, but we're talking about Boston here, is that you can end up with a food desert problem where there just aren't really a lot of available food options in certain communities or they're kind of very limited foods, uh, very kind of um, prepared and then, you know, vacuum sealed packaged foods, not a lot of healthy foods. So talk to me a little bit about the broader food context around the store and then possibly how it tries to address that. So this is the very serious part yes. of the conversation. We're pivoting from bread. Yes. <laughs> so um, it really, it, it, it speaks to the challenges that these smaller stores have, these bodegas and, uh, and other operators. Um, so uh, if you're a small operator, uh, you generally it's a family. You know, if it's the owner of a bodega, is a mom and a dad and maybe a couple of kids and maybe an aunt or uncle involved. So uh, they have to be incredibly careful with the losses that they incur. So the decisions around the foods that they offer really begin with how much of it are we going to lose? So when you start to think about packaged foods, those are have a long shelf life. Those are what we call shelf stable. But when you get around fresh foods, fresh produce, fresh fresh meat, fresh seafood, now you're talking about loss. And unless you have the capacity to cook those items off and offer them for sale and control your losses, uh, it's going to eat into your profits. And, and in our industry, a, a well-run supermarket, after it pays its bills, gets to keep about a penny to a penny and a half of profit. So our margins are incredibly thin. It's very difficult to absorb substantial losses. So in in the decision-making process for these bodegas and these smaller operators, they choose not to offer these things because the option is they have to build into the cost of that head of lettuce. Uh, if there's 12 heads in a box and they're going to lose eight, the four they sold has to pay for the eight and then provide the – so that they price themselves out of the market. And that's really why you see it's not because these markets don't want to carry these items, is that they can't afford to absorb the losses. 
So a market like ours, which is we've incorporated a prepared foods department to help absorb some of our losses. We have relationships where we can donate this food, and then we can spread the burden of profitability across the full format of the store. So grocery and meat and seafood all carry a little bit of that responsibility for paying for the lights and the electricity. And then we have good suppliers that can get us frequent deliveries. So that's the mechanics of how um, we're going to be able to offer fresh produce in an environment where you might not find that um, because we have diversification in, uh, in controlling our losses and our, our sh- what we call our shrink. Um, that's vital. And so it might seem a little obvious kind of from an intuitive perspective, but help me kind of break down what is the impact when you have not had access to that availability of fresh food and then when you do. So again, really deep stuff here. Um, What we think initially, well, if a person doesn't have access to good, healthy, fresh food, then then their health is not going to be well, right? So uh, if they've only got packaged, salty, sweet, fatty foods, it's probably going to reflect in obesity, in uh, diabetes, and all of those factors, right? So that's, that's one of the most obvious benefits. There's other benefits. When you're offering fresh, fresh produce and fresh meat and things like that, you are inspiring people to cook, you know, not just buy food that is processed and pre-done. So when you're in your kitchen, you know, you might not be there alone. You might be there with other family members. So now we're having an impact on the dynamic of the family. And we know that violence in the community is, is a byproduct of stress. And if we can reduce the stress in, in, in the, at the family level, then we, it's, not a, it's not a far reach to think we're having an impact on the community at large. Now, when you're engaging in conversation and you're preparing foods, hopefully there are children around learning how to do this, right? And taking pride in it. It's how I learned to cook, working next to my mom. It wasn't an option. It was a mandatory that we had to, besides cooking, we had to do dishes and all that, right? But those opportunities don't exist today because the food isn't there. You know, it's easier to just buy pre-made stuff and then, or just call for a delivery or something. So we're hoping to impact the fabric of our community by by offering these fresh products and also uh, giving folks the support behind it, showing them how to use these ingredients and having people who actively use these ingredients share that information because we have a very multi- multicultural store uh, in the most multicultural part of the state of Massachusetts, right? So um, it, it's, a, it's another way for society to look at a group of people that are very different um, that prioritize things slightly differently, but have a common thread. And, and, and food on a table does that. It draws people together. It doesn't matter where you come from. If it's good food, it's good food, you know? And you'll find a reason to partake as well the person across from you. And that's, that's kind of what we're offering, what we're hoping to do. And there's tangible ways that we do that, right? By partnering with people like Richard and the, and, at the Family Nurturing Center and, and Samantha over at Bowdoin Health Center. Um, you know, these are completely dedicated individuals and, and they help. We, we're a resource for them is what it comes down to. We're, we're an extension of their established connections. And that's our purpose. That's where we are, find our service. And this does, of course, kind of loop us back to the financial component of it, Mm -hmm. the business model itself, which uh, I guess if you're trying to figure out 
why someone should buy into a co-op or why someone would buy into a co-op, uh, and then the impact of having kind of community investment in a literal sense in the store in the middle of the neighborhood. What's the hope for that? How, how was the model fine-tuned? And, you know, how was an amount landed on that seemed both accessible to people that live there, but then also uh, hopefully enough to run a store? Well, these are great questions. So um, let's start with, you know, we talk about ownership positions. And when you think, well, I'm going to buy in, it's $100, I'm going to buy in, I'm going to be an owner of this co-op. And that, you know, the benefit from that isn't a monetary benefit. Clearly, if we have dividends, if we make profit, we're going to distribute that money across the the ownership base. But it's a long time coming before we're going to make profit. You want to participate because this is a... This is a door into having an impact in the community. It's a door that's open for you. It costs $100, and um, if you don't have that $100, uh, we will subsidize to the whatever amount we have to. We just want you to participate. We want to hear your voice. The finances around that, the, the membership, the money that we gather from the membership is a very, very small amount when it comes to operating, running a store, building out a store. It's really more of a... Of a a testament of a person's individual commitment. The amount was determined based on what was considered reasonably affordable for the average person in the community we serve. And again, it's highly subsidized. So we have money. We have lots of folks to help subsidize it. If that $100 is too much for you, we want, your, we want you to be part of us. Um, our, our profitability, our, how we're going to be sustainable, it's going to initially come from a couple of different sources. Fortunately, we have some great support with foundations that have really been very generous to help put the seed money out there. We've done some crowdfunding things which have been well received and we have a whole rotisserie chicken program because of it, the ovens and the coolers and everything. So it's, it's been amazing. But at the end of the day, it's going to come from operations. And so we have to have, we have to be diversified enough within the mix of goods that we sell and we have to price where there are items that are going to be attractive and affordable. And at the same time, we will have items that have enough profit margin to offset anything that's deficient. Uh, I, I want to speak to this a little bit more because uh, people think, well, it's a co-op and it's for the community, so it's got to be cheap. It's going to be cheap. Well, I, I can tell you our meat and our fish and our um, our chicken is not going to be cheap because of the standards that we have around that. Uh, most of us in this country have, have become accustomed to these things being cheap, um, and we've looked the other way as to why they're cheap. And that's been the driving factor for uh, you know get, getting the distribution out. Uh, our driving factor for having meat in our store is that these animals have been treated humanely. There's been great handling practices. Uh, people are paid fairly. The farmers we deal with are making enough money so that they'll be able to sell us next year too or the next time we go to buy. But that there are still people in our community that are, are you know, that the dollars and cents really matter to. And, and it's great that these are free to roam animals, but I have to feed my kids and I have only so much to work with. So we have a bulk department that allows us to purchase goods in large quantities, like 100-pound bags of rice and beans, right? So we, we pour these into dispensers where a customer can come up and they can purchase a pound of rice, a pound of beans, and they can buy a different kind of rice every single night. They can have basmati, jasmine, any kind of rice, brown, anything they want, 
and they don't have to carry a big bag at home. But we base our pricing on the 100-pound bag. So it will be priced as though you were buying 100 pounds. So that's going to help keep the cost of those items. That's our dried bulk. We also have something that's fairly innovative, at least for New England, not for the West Coast, but for New England. It's a liquid bulk department. So this is a place where you can buy uh, as much maple syrup as you want, which we've seen, olive oil, Are you guys oil. robbing the entire state of New Hampshire or Vermont? <laughs> well, bulk being like we'll buy a large quantity and then we have a dispenser that we fill. And then you can bring your container in and we'll fill it up. So this is good for the environment. Uh, we're not adding any plastic. This is for the folks that are trying to focus on a zero-waste lifestyle. But not only are there going to be edible uh, liquids, there's going to be uh, household cleaners and shampoo and laundry soap. So instead of buying a $25 or $23 jug of Tide, when it's empty, bring me the container and then we'll fill it with as much as you want. So for some folks that are on, uh, you know, have restricted incomes and they're waiting for that next release of money, they don't have to drop $23 on a thing of Tide. They can drop five. You know, and uh, this is all kinds. This is body soap and anything that's liquid we're going to have available for you. Um, And you won't be paying the marketing costs and you you won't be adding plastic to the environment. That's kind of how we've structured the the financial operations of the store. And one thing that I want to make sure that we hit before we leave is sort of where we started, which is that a food co-op now is pretty rare in Boston. There had been some before. This yeah, took right. 11 years to get going. Uh, if I recall, if my math is right, the Dorchester Food Co-op is 11 yeah. years in the making. What about it took so long? And then is the idea that this would start kind of a new wave of food co-ops? Another great question. So the, the, the thing about co-ops, people find these in the suburbs, Western Mass, New Hampshire. You know, you'll find a co-op where there's a lot of crunchy granola, tree-hugging folks, right? But you won't find them in the city unless you're in New York, and then it's a different kind of co-op model, right? And there's a lot of reasons for that because it's difficult to get locally grown items into the city in the quantities. But that's changing. And Boston is amazing. We have lots of access to to uh, support for locally grown and produced items. So we think we can get these things into our store. Also, there's a sense of will folks value the concerns of the co-op? So like the environment. Does it matter to city folk, if you will, that we're not throwing more plastic into the ocean? You know, and today we see more and more of that happening. But in the co-op world, the ethnic component is incredibly difficult to deal with. Uh, it has typically been a market servicing, um, predominantly the white educated customer base that has discretionary income and is able to, you know, find their way to the co-op and buy in their Birkenstocks, right, and and get what they need. But now we're trying to offer goods that are often foreign to the co-op operators. Yucca and plantain, uh, you know, these are things that are so staples for many, uh, many cultures. And many co-ops just, they, they don't even know how to price them. You know, selling them by the each a dollar a plantain. Boy, that would drive people nuts. And then there's the warming up practice. I mean, a lot of folks look at the co-op as kind of an extension of another major natural food supermarket owned by an internet distribution company, right? I won't say their name. Uh, <laughs> 
So, uh, so anyhow, they, they think that that's who they are. They're really just an extension of Whole Foods. Uh, and it's not, it's not my store. This, this isn't for me. So these are the hurdles that co-ops deal with. When I was running Urban Greens in Providence, we had a, you know, there's not a lot of good th- things you can say about COVID, but one of the things was that worked out that we were able to leverage and, and use to our advantage was that the city of Providence was looking for someone to distribute food, to prepare bags of food and distribute it. And since all the other markets, because of their distribution system, uh, were out of, their shelves were empty, my co-op Urban Greens was not. Our shelves were full because we weren't dependent on a centralized purchasing platform. We could go anywhere and get anything. So when the city of Providence saw that, the, the healthy communities uh, office, they said, hey, we need to feed 2,000 people a week. Can you do it? So we said yes, not knowing how, but our job is to put food in bags. We can do that. And so um, that was our inroads. That, was those, that opened our doors immediately to the communities of color that were looking at us as an outsider, as an extension of that Whole Foods. So we don't have COVID as a leveraging point right now, but we have all of these organizations that uh, every, every street corner in Boston has its own neighborhood association. And because of the work done by by Jenny Silverman and Robin Sanders and and Mary and all these other folks in our co-op, they've been banging at this for years, we're we're known already. And we have these doors opening and people coming to us every day to get product. We're, We're not open yet, but we have distribution that channels through us of lettuce and collards and the CSAs and all kinds. So we're constantly giving out food all day long right now. Um, and that's, that is the key into the uh, kitchens of these communities, you know. That's all the time we have this week. Thank you again to John Santos, General Manager of the Dorchester Food Co-op, for joining me. Thank you all for listening, and leave the podcast a rating or review on iTunes if you want to help others find us. We'll be back with you next week. <laughs>